The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, February 19th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Brianna Joy Gray, Bernie Sanders' campaign press secretary, was on CNN today and was asked about her boss's health and the record to testify to the hellness thereof. I don't think we will release any more medical records. I have those three letters from the doctors that Senator Sanders was talking about. There's, there's nothing in them other than the doctor saying that he's fit. He had a heart attack. Yeah, well, he, he had a heart attack in the fall. Do you think the American people deserve to know more about his health going forward? I think that the American people deserve to know exactly as much as every other candidate has released in this race currently and historically. And what you're seeing right now is really reminiscent of some of the kind of smear, kind of a skepticism campaigns that have been run against a lot of different candidates in the past, um, questioning where they're from, um, aspects of their, uh, um, their, their lineage, et cetera, et cetera. Now, by et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you don't mean to include in that et cetera. It seems like what the et cetera means is birtherism. Really? You don't yada yada sex and you don't et cetera, et cetera, birtherism. Gray went on to assert that Michael Bloomberg had a heart attack. He hasn't had one. Or maybe he has and it will only be revealed in choppy audio from the 2015 Aspen Ideas Festival. Ideas and cardiac arrhythmia. Gray went on to defend the birtherism analogy on Twitter. She tweeted at Tim Wise, the author and anti-racism educator. She said, Obama did release his birth certificate. Bernie did release his health records. Get the analogy? Uh, no, because a birth certificate is definitive proof to rebut a claim that never had any merit in the first place. And the records that have already been released in Bernie's case are a brief snapshot of an ongoing condition that, of course, actually did happen. Gray added to Tim Wise, you might have made a living explaining racism to white people, Tim. But trust me that this black woman who literally grew up in Kenya gets it. Wait, now I'm really confused. Actually, having grown up in Kenya gives you more standing in this debate? I'm thinking maybe Brianna Joy Gray is either misunderstanding the analogy or misunderstanding analogies in general. The one-upsmanship? Oh, I was actually born in Kenya? I mean, what do you do with that? What's the next level? You'd have to say, well, as a guy on Twitter who's currently having a heart attack right now and live tweeting the EKGs, yeah, I, I know I've lost the thread. Except this, birtherism isn't medical records. That we know. And I do worry if the health of the candidates become a top concern. Oh, you know, Biden's just going to want to go down and do some push-ups right there on the stage tonight. And look out. It turns if it's all about health. There is now a lane for Tulsi and her squat thrusts. And here comes John Delaney showing off his plyometric training. What a nightmare. I do have to say, in all sincerity, the obsession with will you release medical records, it's invasive and I think it's inappropriate. It would be illegal on any job interview to even ask for or inquire about an employee's health, let alone their actual health records. And while the president, it can be argued, is the most important employee in America to an individual hirer, he's not necessarily or she's not necessarily more important than that person sitting across from the guy who runs the small business or the up-and-coming business hiring an extremely important position. 
Why do you think it's wrong to ask about medical records when you're interviewing is the reason is, oh, well, the job probably won't be that important. No, I don't think that's the reason. I think the reason is that it's an illegitimate invasion of privacy that could lead to discrimination in the workplace. That same principle applies. With the possible exception of Woodrow Wilson, a full medical vetting of any president before he, in this time we got to say he, came into office, would not have revealed any incapacitating illness. Lincoln may have had Marfan syndrome, but it didn't affect his presidency. The better medical assessment at the time would have been a folder, which when he opened contained the diagnosis, John Wilkes Booth, Kennedy, Addison's disease, Grover Cleveland. He was just a roly-poly mess. Historians rate Grover Cleveland as the least healthy president. He was 5'11 and 250 pounds. His nieces called him Uncle Jumbo. Still, he was a two-term president and not consecutive terms. Uh, Maybe he needed a rest. When McCain ran against Obama, the refrain was that McCain was a multiple cancer survivor. And Sarah Palin was a heart attack or a heartbeat away from the presidency. But McCain lived for 10 more years. My point is, birtherism comparisons aside, and judgments about the Sanders campaign's openness acknowledged, demanding medical records is something of a political ill. It's inconsistent with what we societally define as ethical behavior, and it also overestimates the ability of Joe and Sue Ellen Forrester of Finlay, Ohio, to be medical diagnosticians. Also, in Bernie's case, it's not birtherism. If anything, it's deatherism. On the show today, oh, the debate tonight, I'm so excited. But will the real Michael Bloomberg show up or will it just be clips from the past? But where do we get those clips? You'll get special access. But first, my next guests have written a book about the petty corruption that attends to the Trump administration, all levels of the Trump administration. And then yesterday, President Trump goes and pardons Milliken, Carrick, DiBartolo, and Blagojevich. I guess with Cohen and Stone gone, he's going to need some new consiglieries. Oh, well, Lachlan Marquet and Asawin Subsang are here to discuss their new book, Sinking in the Swamp. You've probably read myriad books or maybe a myriad of books. You know, both are acceptable about the Trump administration, which is not acceptable. And you read about the major players and the various other minor players who never should have been invited to play. Your Stephen Millers, your generals, Mattis and Kelly, your, mm, let's say, Mike Pence. But what about the C-level, non-replacement levels, lower staffers, the hangers-on, the 'er ne'er-do-wells, the lazy bones? Well coming along to document them. In fact, this has been their stock and trade, or two reporters for the Daily Beast, Aswin, who goes by Swin Subsang and Lachlan Marquet. They are the authors of Sinking in the Swamp, How Trump's Minions and Misfits Poisoned Washington. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, thanks for having us. To what extent was it a strategy to focus on the strata of political appointees and government employees who you chronicle in the book? So this is Lachlan. It kind of emerged organically at the outset in 2017. I joined the Daily Beast right at the beginning of the White House, February 2017. Swin had been there for a while, but I signed on as a White House reporter. And shortly thereafter, Swin and I found ourselves co-bylining a lot of stories about these very characters that you're reading about. And neither of us had covered a White House before, which was a blessing in its own in covering this White House because it wasn't like covering any previous White House. But it also meant we were sort of approaching this with a blank slate 
And we were having to sort of build our Rolodex of sources and White House contacts as we went, sort of building the plane as it as it rolled down the runway. And, you know, if you think back to like May 2017, which in our minds is still like the White House beat month from hell with James Comey being fired and the president is giving classified information to the Russian foreign minister during a meeting in the Oval Office. And it was just like one thing after another. And to their credit, a lot of our colleagues at some of these big publications, places like the Washington Post and the New York Times, were really out front on a lot of the major stories of the day. So we had to sort of put our heads together and figure out, you know, what value add can we bring? How can we advance these stories? What sort of perspective on these, on this White House and the specific stories being told could we bring to the table? And one of the things, I mean, we, we just found ourselves, you know, in touch with the various sources we had developed there, all of whom were thoroughly like pissed off and freaked out and were in the mood to kind of vent to us. And we were more than happy to listen. And we started sort of churning out these stories on, on just how, um, <laughs> like what a disaster it was to be living through this and working through this as someone, you know, sort of a mid-level functionary forced to deal with the fallout from all these events. So that's sort of the angle on it that we took back then. And it's, you know, the, kind of the unique perspective we think we bring to the book. This is Swin. So starting in 2017 and up until this very day, we affectionately or not so affectionately refer to it as the White House Omni Shambles Beat. Reference, of course, to the term from the classic British political satire, uh, The Thick of It. And regarding the book, the way we went about this in terms of the cast of characters we were trying to uh, assemble for it was when we were approached by people who were asking if Lachlan and I wanted to co-author a Trump World book together, we kind of looked at each other with jaundiced eyes thinking, well, okay, there's all these other books out there. There are going to be a lot more Trump World books that are coming out, most of them told through the eyes of like a top-level person like Donald Trump or a Jared Kushner or Steve Bannon or, or someone like that. So if we're going to do this, we have to bring something new. It can't just be another one of these Trump books, which we've been seeing over and over and over again. So we thought about it and – there was this clip I'd seen online, like just one random Saturday morning, I think, many years ago, that I just brought up to Lachlan, and it really stuck with me throughout all these years. It was a YouTube clip of Nicholas Pileggi, who's this great crime reporter and author, talking about the movie Goodfellas, which he, of course, co-wrote with Martin Scorsese because it was based on his book Wise Guy, which was about the real-life Henry Hill. And the clip on YouTube is Pileggi saying something to the effect of, there had been a lot of books written about mafia dons and mob bosses, like your Lucianos and your Gambinos, but he didn't want to do that. For instance, if he wrote a book about Napoleon, he would want to jump in a time machine, grab a random foot soldier off of the battlefield during the Napoleonic Wars in Napoleon's army, and take down that guy's entire story. And through the worm's eye view, through the foot soldier, through the acolyte, you tell the story of Napoleon through his or her eyes from the ground up. You don't tell the story of Napoleon and the era through the eyes and ears of Napoleon himself. So I kick this idea around with Lachlan and we decide, well, what if we told the story of Donald J. Trump and the era and his presidency and his administration and his policies through the eyes and ears of as many Henry Hills in Trump world that we could find? <laughs> So we went about sketching out who we would talk to, who we would want to interview, who we would want to showcase in a story like that. And also at the same time, 
never losing sight of the big guy himself, DJT, as some of his followers like to call him, and sort of having all these interesting Trump stories and anecdotes and fresh reporting in the book, but that is very much grounded in the worm's eye view. There are all these ne'er-do-wells, there are all these people who say, how'd they even get close to power, let alone in the inner sanctum? But then there's Stephen Miller, who's not so much in your book because he's a little bit higher up. But I was thinking about it. He seems to have so many of the traits of these, you know, losers who are in over their heads. Could you assess why Stephen Miller is of a higher order or higher magnitude or what skills he brings that he is able to, you know, be higher level and function unimpeded and pursue his policy objectives. You know, he was a very young sort of top aide to Jeff Sessions when he was a senator and was considered to be like one of the top policy guys in Senate Republican circles when it came to issues like immigration or welfare reform. He wasn't obviously the household name that he is now, but I think his influence really comes from the fact that, well, first of all, he speaks Trump's language to the extent that he's writing these speeches for the president. You know, he's certainly putting words to paper that the president clearly feels are very reflective of his opinions on a lot of these issues. And he was sort of a lodestar when it comes to Trumpism as an intellectual force in Republican politics. And, you know, if you look back, even in the post Tea Party wave of, you know, 2010 and 2012, when you had folks like Mike Lee or Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or Rand Paul or some of these sort of Tea Party stars who filled out the ranks of the Senate in those years, Stephen Miller stuck out as someone who did not sort of indulge the libertarian leanings of Republicans in those years and was very much, he sort of presaged this populist shift, you know, this monumental shift in Republican politics. He's about as divisive a figure as you get in the White House beyond the president himself. But no matter what you think of his policy views, he was ahead of the curve when it came to that remarkable shift ideologically in the center of gravity in the Republican Party. And I think that's where a lot of his influence comes from. Are your sources, are they still there or have they been swept away as so many of the higher level people have been? I have a Rolodex here of all of our sources, phone numbers and names. Let me just read them out to you one by one <laughs> on air. Um, yeah, But seriously, for a moment, uh, some of them are still well mobbed up in Trump world, mm -hmm. still in there in the White House, in the administration, campaign, where have you. Others have been liberated. It's a mixed bag, just like any other. News that was, though, you do get it. One of the challenges of reporting on the White House in, you know, late 2017, early 2018 is the turnover was such that, you know, you're, you build up a relationship with someone and as likely as they're not, they're gone in a few months. So, yeah. Um, it's been one of the unique the unique challenges reporting on these guys. If you look at some of the cabinet positions, take Homeland Security, there's been a number of people in charge, and now there's no one in charge. And I think quite clearly we've gone down a level or another level or jumped four levels down with each successive person in charge of Homeland Security. And I'm wondering to what extent that has played out even among the non-top, non-cabinet level positions. If we're getting the backups to the backups to the bench, just filling the administration, what's the effect? One of the paradoxes of being in a cabinet position in the Trump White House is regardless of the agency you're at, although some more than others, it's sort of animated by an opposition to people within those very agencies. And you've seen that 
at the State Department in particular throughout this whole Ukraine saga, the this idea of a deep state sort of anti-Trump cabal operating within the government. That is to say that taking this position is is necessarily putting yourself like in tension with the very people who are working for you, which is not a way to be a particularly effective administrator of some of these large agencies. Mike Pompeo comes immediately to mind, sort of came on with this, what was initially a very well-received mantra of improving morale at the State Department, which had been absolutely decimated under uh, Rex Tillerson. And this whole Ukraine thing has just completely, uh, you know, Pompeo has has lost the trust of a lot of people at state. You saw it at EPA with Scott Pruitt. You know, he was seen by many of the career folks there as basically in that position to undo all of the work that they had done, whether that was fair or not. So it's just not really a tenable position to be in as the head of one of these agencies. And, you know, look, I've never worked in a federal agency, but I mean, pretty much any job, if you are almost by definition at odds with the very people working for you, it's going to be extremely difficult to get something done. And it's not going to be a very attractive opportunity for someone who probably has many more attractive career opportunities available to them. Benjamin Wittes has this formulation to describe the Trump administration, which is malevolence tempered by incompetence, to which I also add, and shot through with bullshit or mendacity. Do you agree with Wittes that mostly the malevolence, which, you know, he says it comes right out of his mouth, so we know what he's thinking, mostly the malevolence has been tempered by incompetence? No, I can't speak for Lachlan, but no, I disagree wholeheartedly with uh, Mr. Wittes on that. Tell me why. Do you expand on that? <laughs> I'm curious. Sure. Yes, there is a lot of tripping over one's own dick when it comes to Trump and his apparatchiks and his senior officials. And to be fair, 90% of the time there is a dick in play. Yes. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. I think it is a mistake to interpret what is being implemented, particularly on matters such as immigration in the Trump era, as being tempered. There obviously is a good amount of what you could call malevolence or cruelty that is being very systematically implemented over over the past three years. And while a lot of people may be distracted on social media or on what they see on maybe cable news or whatever that has to do with the cartoonish aspects of Trump himself as he's trying to sort of sell this from a messaging standpoint, the gears of the administration are grinding behind the scenes regardless. And I, I want to be clear, like my personal assessment of it is that Okay, if Trump were more disciplined and coldly calculating and more Machiavellian in some sort of actionable and conventional way, do I think the era would be more effectively cruel? Absolutely. I just reject the notion that tempered is necessarily the correct way to uh, look at it. When we're talking about malevolence tempered by incompetence, it's malevolence coupled with rank incompetence, sometimes amplifying each other. Uh, If that makes sense. It does. Sadly, it does. Uh, Last question. Who wins in a Fight Club style pit fight? Stephen Chung, Seb Gorka, or Boris Epstein? I'd say if it's hand-to-hand combat, it's got to be Boris. Uh But Seb is so armed to the teeth that, you know, (laughs) if you're talking like West Side Story style rumble, then uh, I think Seb comes out on top. (laughs) Seb Gorka, in my eyes, can do no wrong, can do anything can beat anyone at anything, so my money would be on Seb Gorka, no matter what your question. <laughs> Say anything nasty about Seb on this podcast, I'm going to come for you. 
be nice. By the way, in the book, when you listed Epstein's bench press and it was kind of dismissive, I was impressed. Could put up 350. Oh, wow. that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Just to be clear about people who pick up this book, things you might read on its face as dismissive or snarky coming from us, you have to understand that we call ourselves, quote, little piglets <laughs> in the book. We try to be as self-critical as we can. So if you think you read this and you're like, well, man, that was really nasty or mean to a certain figure in Trump world, just reread how we treat ourselves. This book is not particularly kind to anybody, including the authors. The name of the book is Sinking in the Swamp, How Trump's Minions and Misfits Poisoned Washington. The authors are Asawin Subsang and Lachlan Marquet. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Joey. What's this weird shop you're taking me to? Oh, man. You won't believe the place. I wandered in here a few days ago, and it is crazy. The shopkeeper's one of these old guys who knows his inventory so well. But what does he sell? You'll see. Let's go inside. What are all these reels and video monitors and Betamaxes? Joey, this is not where you admit that things sound better on vinyl and it's not compressed and I have to punch myself in the face to keep from falling asleep. No, no, no. It's not a record shop. Oh, look, it's the shopkeeper. Hey there. Hello. I'm Joey. I was in here a few days ago. You remember? I brought my friend Clara. Things are so busy it is hard to remember a specific face. What were you looking for? I was in here before looking for a rarity and you unearthed it. It was, oh, what did you name that track? Bloomberg Insults Farmers. Ah, yes, you must mean Business School, University of Oxford, December 2016. That's the one. Wait, what are you talking about? Here, I will play what I found for your young friend. The agrarian society lasted 3,000 years, and we could teach processes. I could teach anybody, even people in this room, so no offense intended, to, to be a farmer. You, it's a process. You dig a hole, you put a seed in, you put dirt on top, add water, up comes the corn. Then we had 300. You could learn that. I heard that. Trump tweeted it as an insult to farmers. Slate wrote of Bloomberg, quote, he's a glib technology enthusiast who sees labor and craft as pointless and obsolete. I think he was talking about farmers 3,000 years ago. It doesn't matter. Don't you get it? That's what this guy does. He has the Bloomberg clips, all the Bloomberg clips. He has the whole archive, and he knows how to use them, too. Like that clip. When was it again? Syed Business School, Oxford University, December 16. Now, you may have heard some other clips from that speech. But you take the money from the rich and you give it to the poor. You do it for altruistic reasons. You do it because you don't want the poor on your doorstep. And Or even the part where he said, the poor, they don't have it that bad. The bottom 20% in New York City, 80% have cars. Uh, 30% have two cars. I live in New York. I don't have a car. Me either. Nor do I. So he's wrong, which is an extra bonus delight. Well, what about when he says something good? Oh, like when he said this in the same speech? You can fix the inequality. You take money from the rich and you give it to the poor. There's not much of a market for that. So, well, let's say I wanted to do something with the crazy idea that Michael Bloomberg could teach us how to farm. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to find another time he preposterously pretended to have expertise on a process he clearly didn't have. Hmm. Okay, I might go with this IMF meeting April 2018 with Christine Lagarde. You know, you can make fentanyl in your, in your bathroom with a few test tubes and a few chemicals. Wow, that's great. Any other cuts from that one? Oh, yes, there's this. Now, some people say, well, taxes are regressive. 
But in this case, yes, they are. That's the good thing about them. Why would anyone say that? You don't really want to know, do you? No, you're right. It's better this way. No, 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 no. I want to know. What's the whole clip? Fine. Here it is. Now, some people say, well, taxes are regressive. But in this case, yes, they are. That's the good thing about them, because the problem is in people that don't have a lot of money. And so higher taxes should have a bigger impact on their behavior and how they deal with themselves. So I listen to people saying, oh, we don't want to tax the poor. Well, we want the poor to live longer so that they can get an education and enjoy life. Oh, now that makes sense. Shh, you'll depress the market. But you do weird requests, though. Of course. Okay, what if I wanted to float the rumor that Bloomberg was a part of a failed comedy team with Boris Johnson? Do you have tape of that? Of course I do. Uh, but, I, I but, might but, point but, out that Boris was born in New York. Let's I not was, forget I, about I, this. You were born in Boston, by the way. I was, I was. But Boston is where Bedford. you start the first time you invaded us back in 1776. It was there. I, I, I know, I know, and it was it was about it was about taxation, as I seem to remember. A point that <laughs> a, a point that a point, America now and exercises in reverse taxing people in this country, even though they haven't lived in America for 45 ah, years. Wait, the backstory here. No, 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 he's no, not getting away with it. Never mind that. We never have a minor problem never, with never Boris mind. Boris Johnson. It turns out that in America, we tax you no matter tax where you, you make where your everything. money if you're a citizen. I think Boris was very proud of all all of a sudden. That was from their famed routine, Tax Me, No, Tax You, Atlantic 2015 City Lab Summit in London. Okay, but do you have him working blue? I do. Let's go with the Bloomberg Invest New York Conference. I said that one time. It was a House Select Committee. I was out in Seattle. There were four mayors testified, and then... Four Democrats, two Republicans. Sesson Brenner was one of the Republicans. I forget the other guy's name. And it was a House Select Committee. Select committees, if you don't know, they can't introduce legislation. They're there so they can get PR, so that they can get stories in the paper for their homegrown, their home uh, constituencies. And this uh, one, the two Republicans said, uh, Mayor Bloomberg, we're not going to stop polluting unless you stop, uh, unless China stops polluting. And I said, Congressman, you're saying we should continue to kill our people because they're killing that people. That's the stupidest F-U-C-K, (laughs) I-N-G, reason I've, I've ever heard. Wow. Okay, so everyone knows about him using the police to crack down. Yes, yes, young black kids. I've got the Harvard Commencement 2016, Aspen 2015, Georgetown 2008, Manhattan Institute 2009. No, 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 no. That's not what I want. Use of police for something weird and obscure that no one ever thinks about. Oh, okay. The the 2019 City Lab Conference. It's easy. Look, we don't have borders between states. So you can go over to the next state, buy guns, and bring them in. People do that. It's interesting. In New York, we used to have, at 4th of July, a number of kids who lost an eye or lost a finger or something with fireworks going off. What did we do? We put cops in the parking lots in Pennsylvania where they sold fireworks to out-of-staters, but not to people who lived in Pennsylvania. It was too dangerous for people in Pennsylvania, so they wouldn't let them buy it. So they sold them to people out-of-state. We wrote down the license plate numbers, put them into the license plate reader, and when they came to New York City, we grabbed them, pulled them over, took their car away, put them in jail or whatever the hell we did with them, and stopped it. And, and, and now nobody goes to the hospital with losing an eye or a finger. At least as of three years ago, they didn't. I assume it's still going on. Awesome. So we could cut the part out where he says no one loses a finger or eye anymore and post it on all the right wing sites as Mike Bloomberg hates the 4th of July. 
Or on left-wing sides, Bloomberg's police state discriminates against the differently fingered. Or targeted for Pennsylvania, watch Mike Bloomberg admit how he targeted the Pennsylvania economy. There's something for everyone. But why do you even have this place? Yeah, I mean, how do you know there'd be a market for a strange or embarrassing or just manipulatable thing that Bloomberg said? A funny story. Back in 2008, I paid top dollar for the Giuliani archive. We thought that would do big business. It would be a treasure trove. And they just threw in the Bloomberg for free. Wow. Well, thanks for your time. Oh, so you're not going to actually buy anything? Actually, I'm expanding my tastes. Got any Bernie Sanders praising communist governments when all he's really doing is saying he likes the Russian ballet? Of course we do. And if you come back, I have some extremely rare Pete Buttigieg vines. You were right, Joey. This guy's awesome. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the Gist's associate producer. When she's feeling down, she fires up a 2019 Investors Forum or a 2013 Talks at Google. Great pick-me-up. Daniel Schrader is the producer of The Gist. He thinks asking for Bernie's medical records is wrong because he just does not need to know about that man's moles. The Gist. Don't think I haven't looked for the actual footage of Bloomberg saying fucking to James Sensenbrenner. It was the November 2007 Conference of Mayors in Seattle. I've been on all the tape trading message boards, but I can't find it. If you have it, I need a miracle, man. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>